0: The Good News According to St. Luke, the 8th chapter. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds. And be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the gospel of our Lord. Do all of you know the name Opal Lee? Opal Lee, I was reading about her again this morning. At 89 years old, uh, she walked uh, I forget even how many miles, but a, a lot of miles, over and over and over again, uh, to raise awareness about an issue she cared deeply about, and she was able to raise three million signatures, uh, and it was that uh, that work of hers that got her, her proposal to the administration last year, and so on this date, a year ago, for the first time in American history, uh, America had a federal holiday known as Juneteenth, and Opal Lee was important uh, to making the Juneteenth holiday recognized here in this country. If you're unfamiliar for whatever reason, Juneteenth, the actual day, was this day um, in the 1860s, and there were black dock workers in Galveston, Texas. Uh, This was the last group of documented Uh, African-Americans who heard news for the first time that there was freedom, freedom for the enslaved. When they got to Galveston, there were speeches, sermons, and shared meals, mostly held at black churches, which was the safest place to have those celebrations. The perils of unjust laws and racist social customs were still great in Texas for the 250,000 enslaved black people that lived there. But the celebrations known as Juneteenth, Juneteenth were said to have gone on for seven straight days of joy. Opal Lee talks about why she walked and why she wanted this holiday to be uh, known by the entire country and not just the African American community. So she walked to raise awareness, to gather signatures, and here's what she says about the importance of Juneteenth. She says, I'm wanting so much that the schools would tell the actual facts about what happened They don't know that General Gordon Granger made his way to Galveston with several thousand colored troops and told those 250,000 enslaved people that they were free. They don't know that he nailed that general order number three to the door of what's now Reedy Chapel African Methodist Episcopal Church. When those people came in from their labor and somebody read that to them, we started celebrating and we've been celebrating ever since. She's asked what it was like to celebrate. What does the hall mean mean to her and to other African-Americans growing up? She says, I'd have to go way back to when I was a youngster in Marshall, Texas, and we'd go to the fairground to celebrate Juneteenth. Oh, there'd be games and food. There'd be music and food. People would have speeches and food and food and food. You'd think it was Christmas, right? Such joy. You can hear the actual jubilation, even in her at almost 90 years old, describing what this meant to her as a child and to her community, this historic news. But see, the interesting place, or the interesting thing, of course, is that the emancipation that took place in Texas that day in 1865 was actually a couple years late. It was just the latest in a series of emancipations that had been unfolding, not only since the 1770s, but especially the Emancipation Proclamation signed by Lincoln two years earlier on January 1st, 1863. January 1st, 1863. So almost a year and a half later, these men and women and children had been set free and yet they did not know it. They hadn't experienced the fact of their liberation. They didn't even know that it had been done for them. One historian has recorded that there were, in fact, 20 separate emancipations in the United States alone, if you, if you uh, talk about not only from 1780 to 1865 across the U.S., North and South, but that many emancipations for the news to get out and to be made manifest for actual people in their communities. And what Opal says at the end of her interview, she says of today, today, What I keep saying over and over again is none of us are free until we're all free. We have too many disparities that we still need to address. The thing I thought about this morning as we're reflecting on this text together and on Juneteenth, uh, it's amazing how hard change is. It's kind of astounding and depressing, to be honest, how slow change is. What might have happened in that extra year and a half that those folks in Galveston, Texas, could have done differently with their lives? You know, Almost as long as you first heard about a pandemic two years and think about how much life you've lived and how many changes have been made and what you've been through. Just in that time, They were free but knew it not. See, change is really, really hard. It took a long time even for the Emancipation Proclamation to actually effect change in the states. And without going into it, another sermon, you can go look online, we've talked about this, it's on the blog and other things. I've been really direct about it. But of course, even Juneteenth, the original, uh, was only the beginning of a lot of change that still needed to be made and that still needs to be made today. Change is really hard, and it's really slow. And if you're like me, you might want to ask, why is that? Why is good and meaningful and transformative change so hard? Why is it so slow? And I think the answer from this text that we're going to dig into is that though we know we need change and that our experience as human beings, as individuals and as communities, in places like Brooklyn or Galveston, Sierra Leone, Leone, wherever it may be, these places in the world, we know we need change and yet we resist change. Change is hard and slow because there is something in us that resists change. You can think about this as an individual. Just think about how hard it is to make lasting, meaningful change in your life. Isn't it your default most of the time when you see a problem somewhere to know uh, what other people need to do to change, to fix the problem? Isn't that where your mind goes first usually? Oh man, I know what so-and-so needs to do. I know what they need to do. If we would fix this, we would get our act together. We're really quick with the hot takes and the op-eds and the tweets have all kinds of opinions on how to fix others. If we do want change in our own lives, it's usually some kind of self-improvement or self-enhancement technique, and that's fine. But often something surfacey, like our looks or our income. We resist what you might call radical change, and the, the root of that word is actually to get to the root of. Radical, down at the root. To change deeply from within deeply held opinions or beliefs or habits. And corporately, we see how hard change is. If you were in New York, you were experiencing the same thing I was, hearing the same things I was hearing, fearing many of the same things I was fearing, reading, no doubt, many of the same people. And how much we swore we would never go back to business as usual when the pandemic was over. from the protests and George Floyd and everything else we've been through. We swore we wouldn't go back and yet it's so quick for things just to return to normal and even for us to go, yeah, I do want to see some change but also I do miss the old things. If it meant giving up this or going into an unknown future, I'm not so sure. See, What it is, and I think this is kind of the trick, we'll dig into the text in just a moment, kind of the trick to understand this, is that we know we need change and yet we resist it. And it's because when it comes down to it, most of us, most of the time, apart from crises, prefer the status quo. You could put it all sorts of different ways. You know, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. And that would tell you about this text. You know, you might not be deeply happy. You might not be deeply satisfied. You might not be living a life of purpose. You might not know, this is what I was meant to do in the world and I'm doing it. And look, it's bearing fruit. You might not know any of these things. And yet, well, we have our creature comforts. I have these things that keep me happy. These things that are just enough to get by. Status quo. You know, you know, I depend on this food or this drink or this relationship for comfort. And I don't like the way that it makes me feel all the time, but I do still like comfort. I text him or her once in a while. I know I shouldn't, but man, I do like being liked. You know, I'm a follower of God, and I do think that it's not fair for me to withhold my money from him, but I do like safety safety and the security of my accounts. I do kind of want to believe in Jesus, but I don't really want to surrender everything because I do like to have the final word in my life. And so we settle for this status quo, and the problem is, is that every once in a while, we realize that its status quo is always a mixed thing. There's the goodness of the creation, there's the goodness of life and relationships. And yet, we know from systemic injustice down to individual and interpersonal hurt and loss that it's a mixed bag. The status quo is full of sadness and loss and even evil. And every once in a while, that bubbles up. It's, it swells to the surface and we have to deal with it it makes us wonder if the status quo is worth keeping. The status quo. See in this text, what we hear most is that it is a preference for the status quo, but what's underneath our willingness to, to stick with the status quo even though it is not shalom, even though it's not flourishing, even though it's not being set free we settle for the status quo for many reasons, but at the root of it, at the root of it is actually a fear of change. Not just the like of our little creature comforts or the the things that we do just to keep it on balance, good enough, but that we actually fear what it would mean to let our status quo come to an end and to follow God into a fresh new future. We're afraid of it. You know, it's easy. It's easy, to, it's easy to be in charge if we are the ones giving rather than receiving. If you aren't going to receive and be open to change, it means that you're empty-handed, you're humble, you're not sure where you're going, and that is a vulnerable place to be. And so if God comes into the situation and says, here I am. And for you to have shalom, for you to have flourishing, for you to be individually even more satisfied and alive and filled with purpose, I am going to make some changes to this situation. That's the only way that you will have the gifts and freedom that I intend to bring to you. Our first reaction is to often say, hmm, maybe come back in a minute. I got some business to finish here because we're afraid of his presence, afraid of his meddling, afraid what he would do. This story is so bizarre in so many ways. It's hard to even read it in a secular modern context. And yet, let me just remind you what we read for a moment, that there was a man, Jesus goes across the water. He goes to this other strange country Uh, There's a lot of countryside. They're out by the the sea. uh, And there's there's people taking care of uh, pigs in a field. They're kind of in the country, but there's a city nearby. And out there in this strange place in the hinterlands where only the people watching the pigs, which aren't nice animals. I mean, we like a pig nowadays, but they didn't like it back then, right? And so the people out there in the place you don't want to be, out there there's this demoniac. There's this man filled with a legion, an army of demons within him, And there's like this power encounter between God, Jesus, and these demons. And Jesus has come to set this man free to declare to this man that he is emancipated from their power. That the status quo is no longer going to exist for him. The city and everyone around the country is tired of him sneaking into the city and freaking them out like Freddy Krueger at night, right? Here's this crazy, freaky guy. Crazy Larry's coming in. Everyone hide your kids. Hide your wife, right? Let's, let's get lock the doors. No, so they're locking him up in chains and, and, and literally locking him up and sending him away. And just this is the status quo. This is what makes everyone feel more comfortable. We're just more comfortable if crazy Larry is over there out with the pigs in the wilderness. Jesus goes to this man first, doesn't just declare to him freedom and liberation, but gives it to him. And of course, the most beautiful thing here, this is the promise for you, probably should save it for the end, but this is just the flow right now. The promise is this man had no power to say yes or no really. He had nothing within himself. It wasn't like you know, I'll do I'll do a thirty day cleanse. That'll make me feel better. You know, I'll take a retreat. I'll do some wellness stuff. I'll breathe a little more often. I'll try to be mindful, and then I'll, I'll feel better. That's not this man's situation. He had no power to help himself, and perhaps that's why Jesus went straight to him because he was finding a ready audience he was finding one place where he would be welcome. And that is someone who had no power and no help and knew nothing except for need. And in that place, Jesus is welcome and he casts out these oppressors for this man. And it says that the whole town runs out, they see what happens because all the demons run into pigs and this is their livelihood and the pigs run down into the ocean and die. I don't know what happened with the demons after that. It's a weird story. But the town runs out. They're like, what are you doing? You're messing up our economy. You're messing up our situation. You, 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 you got the Freddy Krueger guy, Crazy Larry, loose again. He might come back into the city. We were planning on having a nice dinner tonight. What's happening here with this weird guy that came across on a boat? But it says that they find the man, the one that they knew, that they're afraid of, that keeps the peace by locking him up outside of their community. They find him. It says, sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's important. He is well, he is liberated because he is sitting at the feet of Jesus. We learn in a second, he's sitting open to Jesus. He's like, Jesus, man, wherever you go, I'm going with you wherever. I'm wide open. You're all I need. You're all I have. Let's go. I will follow you. That's what I want to do. Jesus was welcome in this man's entire being, his full presence. And it says, sitting at the feet of Jesus, they find him clothed. Any of you guys get your suit Ladies, you get your first like prom dress someday or something like that. Threads, man, they feel good, right? They feel good. He's clothed. He's used to being naked and cutting himself and scaring people, it says. And he's in his right mind. What would that lucidity have felt like for him? Thinking clearly? Not this cacophony of voices in his head? Oh, you're so terrible. Oh, do that. Oh, try it again. Oh, you're never going to get out of this one. This is a cycle. We got you, baby. Like all the voices in his head, gone. And the people come and see this, and they're afraid. We don't know what this is but this is some kind of freaky power. And you know, this situation was good enough for us because we're over in the city and they didn't have electricity obviously, but you know, for modern context, you know, we're over here, we got electricity. This guy might be living in the dark, but we got our candles. We, you know, we lock our doors. It's good enough. It's a nice little situation we have here. We don't know what this is. What, what happens now with this kind of power and this man? No, 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 no. You need to get out of here. We like our economy. We like the way it works. We we liked those pigs. We like this man out here. It was good enough for us. We are terrified of what you might do. Get out of here, Jesus. It says, well, I just read it to you, but it says, they see him and they're afraid. They asked him to depart from them. And then the final verse is, for they were seized with great fear. It's almost like there was a principality or a power that seized them and put fear into their hearts of this good thing that God was doing. See, when God comes into our streets and our cities and our work and our hobby and our cultures and our politics and our personal lives and our hearts and our minds and bodies, he comes to see whether or not we will receive him will we welcome him there were two main actors or characters in this story as i said one of them had nothing one of them one of them had nothing and the other had just enough the one who was powerless greeted the power of the almighty and all loving God through Jesus and he was transformed and healed and made well. Those who had no idea that they needed a doctor were afraid and settled for going back to things as normal. It wasn't so bad because we put the ghetto over there. You take off and quit messing with our situation. They reject the change that Jesus brings, and in so doing, they reject Jesus. They reject God. They reject healing. They reject shalom. They're not willing to allow Jesus to get in their business and do his work, okay? Jesus says this word repentance a lot. It's one of the first words he says, and it's a very religious word. I think it's not the most helpful translation anymore because we've heard it only as a, as a sort of weird word that scares people, but it just means To have a metanoia, to to have a a transfer of mind, to change your mind, to get off of this level and to let it go to a new level that only God can give meta level. Change your mind. This is what they were unwilling to do. And so for us, I just want to apply it for a minute. As individuals, you think about yourself. Alice Waters you know, the, the food giant. She says this, our full humanity is dependent on our hospitality. We can be complete only when we are giving something away. And I think it's beautiful. She's part of a great hospitality industry and we hear the word hospitality, we just think of an industry that makes money. But we're talking about making room, welcoming a guest into our lives and then adapting. So uh, we have we have uh, my my mom and mother in law coming in town for my twins' graduation this week. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to be moving furniture around. We're going to be changing our calendar. We're going to be, you know, doing all sorts of things to make room for their presence. And we're going to be excited. And that's what happens if you are going to make room for God in your lives. Is you have to be willing for Him to come and say, "I'd like to sleep over here. Let's eat this instead of that. Let's have a conversation. I'll do the listening, but now I am doing the talking." to be open. And she says our full humanity is dependent on our hospitality and she's right. If you want to be more fully human and alive and have purpose and joy, you have to make room. Make room for the power and presence of Jesus to change you. Even precisely in those things that have seized you and hold on, those things that you grasp most tightly to, the status quo that you're saying, "Well, I just don't know if I could this wouldn't be good enough without that. If Jesus comes and says, Let go, you need to let go. The promise is that you'll be sitting at his feet, clothed and in your right mind. And on mission, I should say. The man is sent back. You hear the words? He's sent back home. Jesus says, Go back to your home. I don't even want to, I mean, <laughs> almost maybe me cry just thinking about it. Um, this, this man had not been home. He had a family that he didn't see. He was out alone, and now Jesus commanded him to go home again. He's going to have a home, and he's gonna have a story to tell and have purpose. This is what Jesus wants to do if you will welcome him to make change in your life. And then together as a church, We'll have to say this a lot over the next year. Together as a church, all these things are happening. We'll be welcoming Resurrection Park Slope next week permanently. Lord willing, we have a new space to call home and to make more of a home for one another and for Brooklyn and for our neighbors. What will God do here? What would it be like to sit at his feet and to see him clothe us In salvation and grace and beauty, to have a new mission where we can go into our homes and share with the good things that God is doing, to be in our right mind. If we want any of it, we simply have to be willing to change. I don't know what we will be in a year, but I promise you it will be a new thing. It's something we can't imagine. It's a future that's out there and we have to follow Jesus and make room for him to do the work of our favorite preferences, our favorite songs, our favorite whatever it may be. Do the work of letting him change us to make us something new. And the promise is that if we will welcome him again and again into our individual lives and our community, then he will powerfully change us. He will powerfully change our community He will change the world in fact he will set us free change is hard it is slow but it is real and it does change the world and it is God who is the one doing it may you believe that again this morning or for the first time I pray it for you and for each one of us that we could live it out in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit